Our Father in heaven, as we bow before you now to open our hearts to you, to receive from you, we acknowledge again just how incredible a God you are. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You are the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You are the great I Am. You exist not by the means of anything else, but simply by your own power. There is none like you in all of the universe. We ask now in the name of Jesus, your Son, that the Spirit of the living God will come to us all this morning to help us to concentrate on the things that we will look at in your word today. Lord, I ask that you would block out what you told us about, Lord, the birds of the air that come to snatch away the seed of the word of God, that you will put an end to all of these voices so that only the voice of the Holy Spirit is clearly heard today. We pray that you would protect us in this place from anything from the evil one that might be projected toward us, that, Lord, you might send it back to its source to confuse the enemy so that we can sit here today with full concentration and full understanding of what you want to share with us and teach us about today. So we leave this meeting now in your hands and pray that the remainder of our time together as we look into your word will be a time in which you enlighten us and help us encourage us, set us free, for Jesus' sake, amen. Please be seated. And take your Bibles and let's turn to the passage of Scripture that was read for us, 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. As you're turning there, I just want to make reference again to... Um, Hamilton Challenge, which is coming this summer. Uh, many of you may not be aware of this, but Hamilton Challenge was started by um, Operation Mob Mob Mobilization. It was a mission that I was once a part of, a great mission. And uh, some of you will remember that George Verwer was here about 10 years ago and preached here on the platform of our church. George Verwer was the founder of OM. And George Verwer went to be with the Lord just two days ago. Perhaps one of the most um, powerful um, powerful servants in terms of making the church aware of the great cause of world, of world missions. So uh, we thank God for, the, um, for this great man uh, who God used in incredible ways. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Now you'll know, you notice that in the scripture reading this morning we started in chapter 9. And from verses 24 through 27 in uh, chapter 9, the reason why I wanted the worship team to include that in the reading was because the last three to four verses of chapter 9 give to us a context in which we can really understand chapter 11. Paul is concerned at the end of chapter 9 for himself. Now, he's writing this letter to the Corinthians because he's really concerned about them. But he expresses a concern about himself, and it's found in the last verse, verse 27. He says, I don't want to become, a, I don't want to become disqualified, he says. It's an incredible statement that the Apostle Paul makes. And in these verses, he, he actually compares uh, the life of a disciple of Jesus to that of a race and of a fight. He, he basically says, we're, we're like a long-distance runner. The life of being a disciple is a long-distance race. And it's also like, like being a boxer in a boxing ring where, where you're going to be pummeled and, and you have to fight back. 
And in, in using the two metaphors there, he, he really is, is calling us all that if we are true disciples of Jesus, we're being called to a life of endurance, a life of discipline, a life of training because, because we're in the race and we're in the match. And so in verse 26, he basically tells us that in the life of a disciple, we need to maintain focus. He says, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, no, he has focus. And then he also says in verse 27 that we need to maintain discipline. And this is where he talks about beating his body and making it my slave. And it reminds us of the, the intense training that boxers and, and athletes undergo before they engage in the race or engage in that, in that fight. Uh, and then he adds, so that after I've preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the, for the prize. I, I, I don't know if that's a verse you've ever really contemplated before. But the Apostle Paul's talking about himself. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I don't want to mess up. I don't want to blow it. I'm in this, I'm in this long dis, distance race, and he's saying, and I am aware that, that I, can do, I can do something foolish. I can do something sinful. That I can become disqualified for the prize. It's a sobering thought. And with that idea in mind then, in the opening verses of chapter 10, he draws from the history of God's ancient people and basically points out that Israel, in, in some ways, is, is an example of what we should be avoiding they had all kinds of privileges. They had all kinds of blessings, but they became disqualified. Look at verse 12, chapter 10, verse 12. So if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall because, because Israel fell. And that's the context of this great promise in verse 13. No temptation has seized you except that which is common to man. But with the temptation, God will provide a way of escape. Israel had a way of escape, but Israel didn't take it. In the beginning of verse 14, he gets really specific. He narrows in on this issue of spiritual holiness again. And he says, do not, he says, don't, he says, my dear friends, flee from idolatry. Don't be involved in the worship of idols. There's a spiritual danger there. So today we pick up on where we were two Sunday mornings ago on this issue of spiritual danger. And again, I just want to remind you all that Paul wrote these words here to Christians who were living in a temple culture, in a highly spiritually charged culture. With, I mean, there were, in, in Corinth, there were temples and worship places and sacred shines, shrines and gods and goddesses everywhere. And friends, you and I are living in the same place. Oh, I know, I know, we, 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 we live in a predominantly secular world, but, but I would submit to you that, this, that, that all of the secularism of our culture is nothing more than a veneer in front of or behind an intensely charged spiritual culture. The Apostle Paul reminds us, idols are nothing. They're nothing, they're just, just pieces of wood, pieces of clay, handmade carvings, but, but there's something real about them. And we looked at the history of, is, of Israel and how Israel had given themselves over to the worship of false gods, to the worship of idols. And Paul 
comes back to them here in, in chapter, it comes back to the Corinthians in chap, chapter 10, basically warning them, listen, you don't want to mess up. You don't want to become disqualified like Israel did because you have to flee this kind of spiritual, this negative spiritual activity that surrounds, surrounds you. And in verse 20, he, he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons. Now, when, when he says that, he's saying there, there's an open door. If you, if you play around in this area, you're, you're opening the door for some kind of demonic activity into your life. It's very clear that he sees here the possibility of, of Christians being adversely affected by demons. Let me, let me, let me share with you a story that I, that I hope will share, shed some light on this. I'm going to share with you several stories today, but... I want to begin with this one. This goes back 30 years ago to 1993. I was the pastor at that time of Churchill Heights Baptist Church, and I received a, a phone call uh, from a frantic young woman. I will call her Susan. Uh, Susan uh, is, uh, is of East Indian back, background from the island or from the South American nation of Guyana. And she and her six or seven other brothers and sisters um, back in the, in the 70s and 80s used to, used to come to our Sunday school on our Sunday school bus. The church sent buses out in the community. People came in. The kids came into the, the Sunday school, and they heard the, the gospel. And Susan and her sister uh, believed what we didn't know was that Susan and her sister went back every day, every, every Sunday afternoon into a, into a Hindu home where there, there was an altar to three of the Hindu gods. And this frantic phone call was about her grandmother. She informed me on the phone that her grandmother had died, but she wasn't concerned. Well, she was concerned, but she wasn't grieving the loss of her grandmother in the frantic voice that she was speaking to me and what her concern was. She felt the spirit of her grandmother was trying to come into her. And uh, so I encouraged her to come to the church office. She came, and uh, me and my associate, we started to pray with her. We, we, we said to her, Susan, it's not possible for the spirit of a deceased person to come in, into you, but it is possible for demons. And we started to pray for her, and immediately the eyes in her head rolled back. She fell out of her chair. And for the next seven hours, we were engaged in an intense confrontation with 14 demons that had come into Susan's life throughout the course of her life. But it was very clear to us that the root of her demonization began as a child and that because of this bowing down and offering prayers to Hindu gods, this had made her more susceptible to picking up demons. She was like a magnet for demons. Now, I share this with you not to sensationalize a story, but simply to underscore the extremities to which participation with demons can actually go. That's what Paul is warning about in this passion, in this, in this, in this passage. The demons can create an entry point into people's lives. So I want to talk to you first of all this morning about participating with demons, and then I want to talk to you about our position in Christ vis-a-vis -vis our protection by Christ. So let's talk about participating with demons first. What, what exactly does Paul mean in verse 20 when he says, I do not want you to be participants with demons? And the word participate here could also be translated share 
I, I don't want you to share with demons. Or another word would be fellowship or communion. I don't want you to have some connection, some fellowship sharing communal activity going on between you and demons. And what Paul is really getting at here is he's, he's basically saying, I don't want you to get entangled with them. I don't want you to get entangled by demonic power. Because, because when, you, when you participate with demons, you, you, you in essence submit to them. You, you make yourself vulnerable to them. You enter into fellowship with them. You, you give leeway to them. Now clearly, the way in which they were participating with demons was by attending these idol feasts and, and, and eating the food and taking part in the pagan ceremonies that were going around. But, but is this the only way in which we can participate with demons? I don't think so. I, I think the scriptures give us, give, us, give us enough information to understand that there are other entry points. And there are examples that we can learn from, both examples in the, in the contemporary world and examples from the Bible. And so I want to share with you, and, and there's probably way more than this, but I want to share with you five categories or five ways in which people can participate with demons, open the door to demonic activity in their lives. And the first is through our family line, through our family line. Th this is what Susan, Susan's problem was. She had grown up in a, in a Hindu home where she was exposed on a daily basis to idols and to Hindu gods. This came from her mother, but it came from her grandmother, and actually it went back in her family line much further than that. There's a real interesting story in Mark chapter 9 where after Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration, he comes down and um, there's a man there who has a son who is demonized, tormented by evil spirits. And in the course of the conversation that Jesus has with the man, he, he asks the man, he says, he says, how long has your son been like this? And the father says, interestingly, he says, from childhood. And the word childhood that is used there is actually the word for infancy. Since he was an infant, so you have to ask yourself now, okay? Okay, like how is that possible? How was how that possible for a demon to get into an infant? I mean, is there any verse in the Bible that actually gives us any clear indication of this? And, and, and of course, there isn't. But, but there, 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 there is a whole pile of information in the Bible, particularly in the history of Israel, in which we can see that, that it is possible for demonic activity in one individual to be passed on through a family line. I, I take you to First and Second Kings, where if you read First and Second Kings, it's all about the kings of Israel and the kings of Judah, and as you read First and Second Kings through, you, you see an interesting pattern. And the interesting pattern is, 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 is that the son does exactly what the father does. And this king who, who, who committed himself to worshiping the Baals and the Ashtaroths, and then his grandson, his son, and then his grandson, and they, and they just carry on doing it. And there's an interesting verse, chapter 15, verse 3 in 1, Corinthians, or 1, 1 Kings 15, that is referring to Abijah, and it says that, that he committed all the sins his father had done before him. 
And, and what is quite interesting in 1 Kings is that every once in a while you get a king who doesn't do what his father does, but he's like the exception to the rule. Now you and I know that children will act out the patterns and the behaviors of their parents. There's this tendency in behavior that develops because of environmental reasons. They live in a certain home. I mean, I, there's a way in which certain ways I act like my father and my mother. I, I learn from them, and, and, and it's true of all of us. But friends, this isn't always just environmental in nature. And sometimes this is spiritual in nature. You see, many, many of the kings of Israel and Judah made vows to these false gods, and and it is likely that these false gods later wanted to lay claim to their sons and daughters and to continue this cycle of bondage because the head of a household had opened up his household to demons participating with them. The demons get sucked into that household and into that family line. And I think this is a principle that is valid and it's operational in many ways because in many occultic and witchcraft type and satanic type rituals that go on today, people actually dedicate their children to evil spirits. And it continues this cycle of bondage. And demons associated with past vows that parents or grandparents or ancestors make can claim rights to the next generation. In other words, there's, there's this kind of residual spiritual influence that goes on in a family line. And I think it's actually hinted at in Mark chapter 9 because when Jesus asks the man a little bit more about what's happening to his son, the father says that the demon often throws him into the fire to kill him. And doesn't that remind us of Deuteronomy chapter 18 where, where where the children of Israel were warned not to take their sons and daughters and to sacrifice them in fire to the false gods. It's almost as though, even though Israel had finally been liberated from its worship of idols at the time of the exile and at the time of Jesus, there, Jesus never addressed idolatry among the Jews in his, in his day, but the evidences of the demonic activity of idols were still present in Israel. Jesus' first confrontation with the demon in Mark chapter 1 is in a synagogue, in a place where Yahweh is worshipped. And so there's this residual effect. Children are the most vulnerable of people. They're defenseless against any kind of harm. They cannot protect themselves. They are susceptible to this. And Mark 9 isn't the only story. We have in Matthew chapter 15 a Canaanite woman whose daughter has a demon. And she goes to Jesus, and Jesus heals her daughter. In Acts chapter 16, the apostle Paul is followed around by a slave girl, literally girl, like she's a young girl, but she has a spirit of divination, a spirit of fortune-telling. Now, if she was a girl that young and a slave, you can be sure she had masters who abused her, severely so. And here she is with a spirit able to foretell the future. In 2010, my wife and I visited our daughter, Mary Lou, who at that time was teaching at the Torchbearer School in Holsbyburn, Sweden. And we visited her, and I was given a week of opportunity to teach at the Bible school there. And we were introduced to a young American girl. She was about 20 years of age. And uh, in a counseling session with her, it became clear that she had demons. And it also became clear that she had received her demons through an act of sexual abuse that her father had inflicted upon her.
before she was one year of age. Demons are evil, and demons attack kids, and demons can wreak havoc within a family line. Now, I know this is difficult for us to hear, but why would we be surprised by this? Because if we've lived long enough at all, we know that there can be adverse psychological and emotional effects upon kids because of the trauma that they go through in life. So why would we be surprised if there might also be adverse spiritual effects that come upon them? We can participate with demons through our, fam our family line. Second, we can participate with demons through occult pra practices. The word occult comes from the Latin word occult occultus, which simply means that which is hidden or covered, that which is done in the dark. Occultism refers to all of the spiritual practices that are rooted in the kingdom of the evil one, and they're very, very broad. We've mentioned fortune-telling or divination, simply seeking information from spiritual sources outside of God, the Holy Spirit. People have, their, have tarot cards, they engage in palm reading, they, 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 they get involved with astrology and the reading of their horoscope almost on a daily basis, believing that the, you know, it's the alignment of the stars can somehow bring information into your life, into my life, as to what our future might be. People will go to psychics and, and there's a crystal ball and in the crystal ball all of you know, future things are seen or people will use crystals to protect themselves from evil spirits or, or to bring about some kind of positive energy in their, in their body. Others engage in, in the reading of tea leaves and a tea, a, tea, a tea cup. This was the sin of my grandmother. And she would read leaves in the bottom of a cup and tell fortunes to those who had their teacups read. There are psychics who claim to have extrasensory percep percep perception, ESP, and they can find information about you and about your life that are unknown to your physical senses. We sometimes refer to this as tele telepathy or clair clairvoyance. I noticed recently that an adver advertisement at the, at the Merritt Hotel for, uh, they're going to have a psychic fair there. And they're going to bring in all kinds of psychics and, and people will go and some people will discover that they too have psychic powers. They're not, they weren't born with this or if they were, it's through their family line, but, but they're going to pick up on this and the using of psychic powers and these psychic fairs is all a part of the work of the, o, the, o, the occult. Shortly after this incident with Susan, we had another incident in our, in our church I had given an invitation one morning for people to receive Christ, and a, and a, a young woman came, came to the front, and we'd been working with her for several months, and she was being counseled after the, serv the service, and someone came running to me in the foyer saying, John, you're needed in the counseling room, and I went into the room, and I'm just going to give her the name Joy. Joy was sitting there, and, and this deacon's wife who had been counseling her said, I don't know what to do. There's something wrong, and I, look, I looked at her, and she looked at me, sheer panic in her, life, in her eyes, and she said, I want to come to Christ, but I can't, and I could, I could see there was fear, and I asked her, have you been to a fortune teller? Boom. Her eyes just lit up. We knew immediately what the problem was. We took her into another room and started to pray for her. She fell onto the floor, and after a few minutes of a little bit of a, spirit, a spiritual struggle, she was set free from a deceiving spirit that she had pick, picked up in going to a fortune teller. 
She became a believer. Actually, she watches us online at 11 o'clock in Toronto. And she is a devout follower of the Lord Jesus. Praise, praise God. People fool around with Ouija boards. A Ouija board just simply means a spirit board or a talking board. It brings you into direct contact with the spirit world. So many people do this just out of fun. They don't think there's anything involved in it. And sometimes the demonic may not show up. But I, I warn you, friends, this is an invitation to the spirit world. It's another form of div, divination. Spiritism is another way. People have seances. They consult mediums. They want to commune with a relative who has died. And when that happens, what the Bible calls a familiar spirit will manifest itself through a medium. And you think you're talking to your late Uncle Joe, but you're not. It's a demon, and you're participating with demons. Witchcraft and sor sorcery is another area. Witchcraft is the, is the use of spiritual power to control people or to harm them in some other way. And in witchcraft and in sorcery type things, there's always invocations to spirits, summoning the spirits to, to work your will, to cast spells or to put curses on other people, to control people. That's what witchcraft is all about. Other people talk about spirit guides, their own personal little guardian angel, but friends, these are not, these are not benevolent spirits. They are malevolent spirits who deceive. Now, in all of the things that take place, in all of the, in all of the things related to the occult, there are usually some kinds of physical objects that are used. And this brings us back to 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10. Idols, demons behind the physical idols. Eleven years ago, a family in our church, their six-year-old son was having troubles at night. And um, the mother heard the story, didn't really believe what her son was saying at first. But they had received a gift from a, a relative who'd gone to, to, Mex to, Me to Mexico. It was a chessboard. And their son loved chess, and he was playing with these chess pieces and playing games of chess. But every night he would see a, a demon crawl out from underneath his bed and sit on the end of his bed and look at him with this terrifying look. You might say, oh, it's just a little kid just having night, night terrors. It was real, friends. And they discerned that what was going on was related to the chessboard itself. And so we were called to their home, and Andrea and I went, and we prayed in the boy's room. And, and, and the chess set, do you know that the chess set, the, 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 you know, the bishops and the rooks and the, and the king and the queen and all that, they were all in the shape of different Mayan gods from Mexico. And once we prayed through the room and asked the Lord Jesus to cleanse the room, and then they took the chess set, destroyed it, and the demon was gone. The demon was gone. I had a similar experience in Scarborough with, with, with two, two girls in a home, two sisters in a home there with their mother and father, and this one room they were sleeping in was filled with terror and filled with the presence of, of evil. And we discovered that, again, idols had been in that room. It was a rented house, and the owner of the house had taken the idols out of the room and placed them in the garage, which was adjacent to that room. And they were able to get the idols removed, and we prayed through the room, and, and the girls never had a problem in that room again. Friends, there's, there's stuff like this in the Bible. I'm, I'm not talking about superstitious, weird stuff. It's in the Word of God. In Acts chapter 19 in Ephesus, there's a great move of the Spirit of God. And, 
and uh, or sorry in uh, in uh, in uh, yes in Ephesus and and God moves in a powerful way and and we read this that 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 after some people had been set free from spirits um, the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor listen to this many of those who believed who believed these are people who came to Christ what did they do next they now came and openly confessed their evil deeds a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. Another way in which we can open ourselves up to the, to the working of evil spirits is through false religions and so-called Christian cults. Fourteen years ago in our church, Karen Cowley stood here. And this was on October the 18th, 2009. And if you go on our website... October 18, 2009, there's a message entitled Assaulting the Dark. And Karen, in the middle of my sermon, got up and, and she shared her story with us here. Her father was a priest in a Christian cult. And Karen was very aware of demons active in her home and in her life at a very, very early age. And over time, she developed an unhealthy interest in the old cult and so on. And she'd gone to Africa and engaged in a in a, in a ritualistic dance in an animistic tribe where they were putting these masks on their faces. And the Lord set her free from ten demons. And they were all connected to the cultic worship of the past and to her involvement with these African masks. Now please don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying that everybody who engages in the occult gets demons. But I am saying it is an open door. The fourth area in which we can participate with demons is through habitual sin and rebellion. In Ephesians 4, it says, the Apostle Paul warns us, do not give the devil a foothold. A foothold. And the context in which he says that is, is Christians engaging in habitual sin and he talks about unwholesome talk. He talks about bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, malice, Immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talking, coarse joke, 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 joking. And he, he, he actually calls all these things the fruitless deeds of darkness. Now that's a phrase you would, you would reserve for the occult. But Paul says, no, all of that sin habitually engaged in is serious, just like the sin of occultism. And the point he's making is that habitual practice of sin leads to increased involvement of the devil in our lives. Friends, when, when, when you allow sin to become habit-forming, you yield space, you give the devil territory, you give him a foothold. Think of an invasion, a beachhead. A beachhead into your life by evil spirits. Giving, as it were, your life or parts of your life over to the enemy of your soul. And again, the context is anger and rage and falsehood. But the concept is an ongoing practice of these things. And it yields control to the enemy. Satan wants to reassert his reign in your life if you give him an opportunity to do so. Listen, if you, if you cherish particular sins, Satan will exploit that. Demons like to pour gasoline on a fire that's already burning. And a moral issue that begins with succumbing to the evil influence of your sinful nature can escalate into a greater spiritual issue. 
Like flies and rats attracted to garbage, unclean spirits are attracted, drawn into unclean thoughts and behaviors, even of believers. And I stress this, not to say that if you have habitual sin, that that means you have a demon, but it underlies the seriousness of getting rid of the garbage in your life. I remember being involved with the pastor of Crothers Creek Community Church, um, a young man who at 18 years of age, I, I, I baptized him at Church, Churchill Heights, and the following week he was gone and never came back to the church. And I, we didn't see him for a couple, a couple of years, and then he showed up at Crothers Creek, and I was called in to help because, because after his, bap, his baptism, he'd gone along with this just because his peers were doing it. And he fooled us all. But he was a bitter young man. Angry and rebellious against his parents and any kind of authority at all. And there, two years later, I'm with him in another church. And demons were manifesting and made him look like an animal. And he could not control his anger and his rage. And you might ask, well, how can anger and rebellion lead to demonization. Well, think of what the the prophet Samuel said to King Saul, remember? He confronted Saul about his sin, and and Saul was an arrogant king. And we know that he was demonized in some way when he tried to take David's life. The Scripture speaks of an evil spirit at work in him. And and how is it that this could actually happen to a king of Israel? And, And Samuel says to Saul, for rebellion is like the sin of witchcraft and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Another way in which people participate with demons is through false teaching. We read in 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Spirit clearly says that in the latter latter times, in the last days, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. You can go to churches and you can hear preachers preach things, but behind it all is demons. It's not a very nice thought, is it? Because they're teaching things that are contrary to the truth as it is in Jesus. Listen, whenever there is in a church or in a religious setting a presentation of Jesus through teaching that does not align with what the Scriptures say about Jesus, its source is demons. Whenever a, another way of salvation is presented to people, even through a so-called Christian preacher, but it doesn't align with what the Scriptures say, the source of that is demons. When people start talking about you can have Jesus and you don't have to change your lifestyle, that is the teaching of demons. Remember, The angel said to Joseph, you will call him Jesus. You'll give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins, not in their sins. And any so-called gospel message, which basically says your lifestyle is okay, and you can continue in that lifestyle because God made you that way, has its source in the demonic. What do we know about Christ? 
We know that Christ saves, that Christ transforms, that he delivers, that he sets the captives free, that he changes us from the inside out. And what do we know about the Holy Spirit? He's holy, and he always leads us into holiness. And any other kind of teaching that is contrary to what, what, what the Scripture says about Jesus and doesn't lead us to salvation or lead us into holy living, it's not from the Holy Spirit. Now let me take a couple of minutes now and just change, change the, the emphasis here. And I want to talk now about our position in Christ and our protection by Christ, okay? Now when I say that, positioned in Christ, protection by Christ, I want you to understand that these two things are related. They are connected. But they are different. You cannot equate all the time position in Christ with protection by Christ. I think that's what Paul is addressing here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Let's talk for a moment about the attitude that the Corinthians had. It's very, very clear they were playing around with idols. They were playing around with the demonic. It's clear that they were compromising and they were careless. And they were compromising and careless because their thinking was skewed. Their thinking was not accurate. Their thinking was not fully informed. They were taking part in idol feasts and they were saying, saying this. Okay, yeah. An idol's nothing. It's not going to harm me. I'm okay because I'm in Christ. They were talking about their position. Were they correct? Yes. They were in Christ. They were thinking, because I'm in Christ, I'm okay. There's no way the demons can harm me. I'm in Christ. And... They were also thinking, if you go to verse 19, actually verse 16, Paul, Paul talks to them and he, he says, I'm speaking to sensible people. Is not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks a participation in the blood of Christ? Well, yes, of course it is. You, you, when we have communion, we share in the benefits of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Is not the bread that we break a participation in the body, a body of Christ? Well, yes, of course it is. But then... Go down to verse 20. The sacrifices of pagans are offered to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. Verse 21, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord. That's what they were doing. They were drinking the cup of the Lord. He's saying, you can't do that and the cup of demons too. You cannot have a part in both the Lord's table and the table of demons. Because they were sharing and communing with demons at the table of demons, but you're sharing and communing with Christ at the table of Christ. And they're thinking, if, if I eat the bread and I drink from the cup, I'm safe. I actually think there's a form of superstition that was going on in the Corinthians' minds. They, they were actually overestimating the power of the sacramental food of the blood or the bread and the cup. So if I drink from the cup and I eat of the bread, like, like that's an antidote. If I, if I, if I take communion, that, that, that's like an ironclad guarantee that I'm protected by Christ. 
but they were confusing position with protection. It's like they were thinking, if, if, I, if I go to the Lord's table and I commune with Jesus, it's okay if I go to the table of demons too and have communion with demons because I'm immunized. I got my, I got my communion jab. And so that becomes a panacea against all spiritual harm. Two things. They were living with what I would call a subtle form of spiritual pride about their position. And, and, and isn't that what he gets at in verse 12 when he says, if you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. You're kind of puffed up, careful. You're, you're, you're in a real spiritual danger zone. And the second is that, is that they were living with this kind of Christianized veneer over their superstition. If I eat from the cup and, or if I, if, if I eat from the bread and drink from the cup, then God will be pleased with me. I will be protected because I have participated in the Lord's table. So how, do, how does Paul address this then? I mean, how do you, how do you get people who are thinking in those terms to think realistically, accurately? Well, it comes to the next point, and that is the example of the Israelites themselves. And so in verses 1 through, one through 6, Paul gives this, them as an example. Now remember, he's writing to the Corinthians who are toying with demons. He says, I do not want you to be ignorant of the fact, brothers, that our, our forefathers were all under the cloud. They, they were under the Shekinah glory cloud. I mean, they, they were walking with God. They had a visible manifestation of the presence of God in their midst when they came out of Egypt all the way to Canaan. <coughs> they passed through the Red Sea. You know, we were talking the other day in our, our, ministry, our ministry team. I've seen God do some incredible things in my life in the 50-plus years that I've walked with Jesus. But I have never seen anything like the Red Sea. Can you imagine that? Standing there and seeing it open up. Like you would think if, if that's your spiritual experience, like if you saw God do that, like, like wow. That's what they had. Verse 2, he compares this to our baptism. He says, they were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. They identified with Moses. Verse 3, they all ate the same spiritual food and drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the same spiritual rock that accompanied them, and that rock was Christ. Christ was with them. They had position. They were the people of God. Verse 5, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them. Their bodies were scattered over the desert. They disqualified themselves. They disqualified themselves. How? Well, look at verse 6. Now, these things occurred as examples to keep us from setting our hearts on evil things as they did. Verse 7, do not be idolaters as some of, their were. some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in pagan revelry. This is a reference to the golden calf that was made in Exodus. Moses comes down off the mountain, the Ten Commandments in hand. And the people of God are carrying on in an orgiastic party? Incre incredible. Verse 8, we should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord 
You know, that's exactly what the Corinthians were doing. Look at verse 20, 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's jealousy? Are we stronger than he? That's a reference to the Ten Commandments, that God is a jealous God. And they're thinking, it's okay if I fool around with idols. You're provoking the Lord's jealousy. You're testing God. And the scripture warns us about testing God. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. Do not grumble as some of them did. They were killed by the destroying angel. These things happened to them as examples and were written down as warnings for us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Can I make a comment about, um, about our doctrinal position? Which I believe in wholeheartedly. But we teach and we believe that we believe in the security of the believer we believe that the believer is eternally, eternally secure in Christ, that those who are true saints persevere to the end. But there are many people who hold to this position, who adopt the same kind of mindset that the Corinthians do. I'm eternally secure in Christ, so it doesn't matter what I do. And you're confusing position with protection. It does matter what you do. He who endures to the end will be saved. And you need to make sure that your calling and election from God are sure. And the way you do that is you abstain from this kind of stuff. You live a separated life. There are some dangers and needs here. The Corinthians were in danger of spiritual complacency. There was the danger of compromise. That's clear. There was the danger of carelessness. There was the danger of spiritual pride. And the need that Paul is pointing out here in, the, in this passage is that they needed to be diligent, they needed to be disciplined, and they needed to be separated from the world in terms of these idol feasts. Okay, I've shared a lot. I just want to take a couple more minutes and give you some, what I would call, takeaway application points. Okay? So in light of this teaching on participation with demons, our position in Christ vis-a-vis -vis our protection by Christ. How do we respond to this? And this is a challenge then to any of us who may have had any involvements with any kind of demonic activity or participation in anything of the things that I've talked about earlier today. Number one, we must repent of provoking God. Go back to verse 20, 22. Are we trying to arouse the Lord's Jealousy, are we stronger than he? We need to rep repent of provoking God. This needs to be confessed by us to God. Lord, I have provoked you to anger. I have provoked your jealousy by giving my thought, my heart, my mind, my attention, my time to participating with other spiritual entities. It's not the one true and living God. Number two, we need to repent of spiritual pride. I go back to verse 12. You think you're standing firm? Be careful that you don't fall. Some of us have pride of position. Some of us are deluded to think we have the pride of strength. Oh, I'm, I'm strong in the Lord. You know, people often say, oh, that'll never happen to me. <laughs> no, we need to repent of spiritual pride. Put that under the blood of Christ. Number three, we need to renounce all involvement in the works of, dark, of darkness. We must remove 
And we must renounce all of our activities and objects that can give spirits a foothold into our life and rights to enter and stay there. It is very important that we break any past links that we have had involved in any of the things I've mentioned, particularly occultic things. Now, what do I mean by renounce? Let me give you two words, I think, to help. Declare and destroy. Declare and destroy. To renounce is, first of all, to declare to the spiritual forces of evil something like this. Hear me, O spirits of evil. I have confessed my involvement in these things. I am now cleansed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. I am a regenerated child of God by the power of the Holy Spirit. I have been adopted by the Father, and Jesus Christ is my brother. My Savior has defeated you at the cross, so hear me now. I renounce all of my past involvement, and then you list those things. And I recognize and renounce as well anything in my family line that has come down to me. I disavow myself from all of these things. And I sever any vows that have been made on my behalf in the past that I had no part of but may be affecting me to this day. Now this is not a repudiation of your fam family at all. It is only a renunciation of the sinful practices and connections that could be there through your family line. I mentioned my grandmother who was a, tea, a teacup reader, and I had to do this in the first or second year of my Christian life when I became aware of these truths, and I renounced the works of my grandmother. I loved her very much, but what she did was wrong. It was evil, and I renounced that, and I asked the Lord to break and to sever any spiritual connection or tie to me, to my grandmother who did not know God, who practiced this type of fortune-telling. And then we declare that all of these things have been broken by Christ, and we say to the unseen world, we take back any rights, any grounds, any privileges, and declare to them, I want nothing to do with you, and all of your works are renounced. Secondly, destroying these things, anything that we have that's connected with this, charms or reading material or, or physical charm, or physical objects like crystals or things that are associated with the spirit world, like tarot cards and Ouija boards, astrology books, amulets, things of this nature. Again, we go back to Acts chapter 19. That's exactly what the Christians did there. Let me read to you this. This was given to me by Sue, who's on our ministry team. She and Lorna had been ministering to a, a woman in her 60s who had been involved in astrology, completely consumed with horoscopes, for all of her Christian life, from her teenage years right up until recently. And um, Sue wrote to me and said, when we met with her, she was always combing over horoscopes, horoscopes and astrology, and she puts in brackets, as a committed believer to Christ. We led her through renunciations and confession and asked her to think about getting rid of all her stuff. She wanted to do it and seemed cooperative she had everything boxed and bagged, and it filled her trunk, the trunk of her car. Each week after we asked if she had taken it to the dump or somewhere, weeks passed, and there was always an excuse why it hadn't happened. We asked if she was returning to use it, and she said no. It almost seemed like there was no obvious warfare about getting rid of it. 
It was like she just couldn't pull the trigger. After another session, when we talked about it again and she worked through bringing more wounded areas of her heart to God, she says that on her way home through a rural area, she drove past a lady with a leaf fire outside, way down a long drive, driveway toward a farmhouse. This woman drove past it, saw the fire, said this, the Holy Spirit seemed to compel her to go back, <laughs> go back to the fire. She did. She went down the driveway. She went up to the woman, told the, wo the lady about the stuff in her trunk, asked if she could burn it on her fire, and the lady agreed that day. And, and now... Nancy, that's her name, hasn't returned to these pra pra practices and God led her to a fire in a rural area that no one but God himself knew was there. Isn't that an amazing story? Praise God for that. You know, friends, that's exactly what the fourth point is all about. We need to focus on the temptation promise. Actually, I like to call it the way of escape promise. Verse 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Isn't that what God did for this woman? Providing a fire on the way home so she could destroy all of these things. Listen, there is no temptation that comes at us, whether it's of a spiritual nature like this or of any kind, that God doesn't provide a way of escape. All of what you need to be holy is there for you in Christ. Number five, we must commune exclusively with Christ. If the Corinthians were overestimating the power of communion, they were also underestimating its purpose. And communion with Christ is to deepen and strengthen our participation in the benefits of the cross. We take communion because we nourish our souls on Jesus. We read our Bibles, we pray, we, we worship, we do all of these things we, we, because we want to nourish our souls on Jesus. <clears throat> and in verse 16, when he talks about participating in the blood of Christ and in the body of Christ, that means we get entangled with Jesus. We submit to him. We become vulnerable to him. We give Jesus leeway in our lives. And so we need to make a declaration that I only want Jesus in my life. No other Lord. No other Master. And I want nothing to do with any other Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit. May God give us grace to do all of this. Would you stand, please? Father in heaven, I pray this morning that you will help us all to do any kind of spiritual work that we need to do so that we will experience your freedom, experience your power, know the blessing of cleansing through the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that, Lord, you will work in us in such a way that our desires become pure and become holy for you. We're going to bring our time of worship to a close right, right now. And I'm just going to ask the worship team just, just to play instrumentally for us without any singing. And I'm also going to ask that if you want to be prayed for today, if something in the message has touched you, informed you, affected you, 
uh, and you would like to be prayed for, you'd like to receive some counsel, that you would remain in the auditorium and make your way to the front. I'm going to ask our pastors and elders, members of our ministry team, and other uh, key individuals to, to stay behind and to pray with you. And uh, if any of you want to just sit down in your seats uh, while the music is being played and continue to pray silently, um, please feel free to do so. You may want to do some business with God on your own in your seat today. Please feel free to do, to do so. But the rest I'm going to ask if you would exit the auditorium. And if you would exit the auditorium quietly, please, so that we have a spirit of, of silence in the, the auditorium and an opportunity that is conducive for prayer. So our service is now concluded. But if there is ministry that needs to happen to you and you would like prayer, can be things related to what we've talked about this morning. It can be other matters. If there's a need that you have, then you feel free to stay behind and uh, our auditorium will become a sanctuary of prayer. Thank you.